All right, it is weird science, food science sometimes. We're talking corn dogs before the break. So, so let's do a little bit of that. And by the way, Radio Parallax does not recommend that you eat corn dogs. <laughs> to which I would hasten to add our anti-corn dog stance does not necessarily represent the opinions of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But anyway, to quote from the Lucas Riley piece in Mental Floss uh, about where did that corn dog come from, let's start out with smoke flavorings. Turns out liquid smoke comes from actual smoke. To make it, wood chips or sawdust are burned and the vapor is captured and condensed into a liquid. After your dog is cooked, it'll get a quick shower in it. There's eggs in a corn dog, and the piece notes that according to Steve Ettinger's Twinkie Deconstructed, most eggs come from leghorn hens, and they get cracked in specialty plants like papetis in New Jersey, which breaks nearly 7 million a day. Obviously, there's corn in a corn dog, and in fact, they use yellow number two dent field corn. They also use corn syrup, which is made in huge batches. Now, evidently, 40,000 bushels of corn are soaked in seven-story tanks of hot water for two days. The cornstarch is separated from the wet milled kernels, centrifuged, and washed up to 14 times. Most of the starch, I did not know this, is used to make cardboard, but the rest is placed into a vat with hydrochloric acid and heated into corn syrup. Mmm, yum. Now, as with the Twinkie, the iron you eat in your corn dog is mined. <laughs> yes, you're eating something that's mined. And apparently they get some iron from oil wells. As refineries extract sulfur from the sour crude oil and convert it into sulfuric acid, the acid gets shipped to steel mills where the where freshly made steel is pickled in an acid bath. As iron saturates the acid, crystals of iron sulfate sink. They're powdered and mixed into flour to protect eaters from deficiency-related ailments like anemia. Now, vitamins, of course, are something we all think of as being healthful. But the riboflavin, thiamine, and folic acid in your corn dog, and probably in your vitamin pills as well, may be worthy of some extra scrutiny. Turns out that an awful lot of vitamins get manufactured in China, where the environmental standards are lax, believe it or not. For example, thiamine mononitrate, vitamin B1, is naturally found in brown rice husks. In fact, one of the first vitamin deficiencies, beriberi, was discovered in people that ate only polished rice. That gave them a deficiency in thiamine. But these days, your thiamine is usually synthesized from petrochemicals derived from coal tar because it's easier and cheaper to synthetically create vitamins than to extract them from plants. And by the way, most B1 companies, they keep the industrial details secret. Of course, there's vitamin B2, riboflavin. Your corn dog has some. It comes from either bacteria, yeast, or fungi. 30% of the world's B2 is made from the fungus Ashbia gossypii. These microbes are dunked in a broth of fermenting fats and carbs, at which point enzymes secrete vitamin B2, which is then extracted, crystallized, and powdered. And vitamin B9, folic acid, is a little suspect. Most of the world's B9 is made, again, in China from a soup of petrochemicals or fermented tapioca starches. The acid gets purified with zinc and magnesium, which is mined from open pits in Australia, and then powdered. And you know what? I got a whole other page of these contents, but I think I've lost my appetite. I do want to talk about uh, one health controversy we ruminated on before and probably should do again. Um, this question of milk. Does it do a body good? Well, some studies suggest uh, maybe not. 
The milk industry has long pushed their product off on us as something that keeps bones strong. The last fall, a study in the journal BJM cast doubt on this widely held view that milk can help adults ward off hip fractures and broken bones. After they tracked more than 100,000 Swedish men and women for up to 23 years, the study's authors saw no link between milk consumption and fracture risk. They did, however, find that avid milk drinkers were more likely to die at younger ages than their counterparts who drank little or no milk. You know, I remember hearing health guru Jack LaLanne belittle milk. I remember thinking anybody that can swim in from Alcatraz in handcuffs towing a boat must know something about health. But uh, some studies do suggest, as Jack LaLanne always contended, and I think Arnold Schwarzenegger too, that uh, if you want some you know, dairy products, you'd be better off with yogurt, cheese, and other foods that are fermented. Because compared to milk, these foods have a lot less lactose. That's because they're produced by a lactobacillus bacteria, which loves to eat lactose and convert it into lactic acid. Turns out with less lactose, these dairy foods produce less D-galactose, which is thought to be the source of um, some of the health problems that people think uh, go along with milk drinking. We're going to continue to follow this one. If you've got any food science people listening, please feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Of course, the Swedish researchers did point out when they published this study that uh, it only shows an association between some health problems and milk. It certainly doesn't prove that milk is causing the effect. Then again, in, in the study, women who said they drank three or more glasses of milk a day had almost double the chance of dying during the study period as those who reported only drinking one glass. Yikes. Of course, we noted a piece this week. The Sacramento Bee, noting that the milk industry is fighting back against an anti-dairy trend, as you would expect they would. The piece notes that Julia Cattison, described as CEO of Milk Processor Education Program, which represents milk companies, uh, was concerned about that British medical journal piece uh, uh, based on the Swedish studies. Of course, here's what she said in a phone interview. That's enough. We can't have these headlines that milk can kill you and not stand up for the truth. So they've launched a get real social media campaign. Yeah, let's not do any research. Let's launch a social media campaign. What were we saying earlier about marketing? No, the milk people are going to, you know, take their case to Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. Along the way, they're going to produce online ads which tout the superiority of dairy milk over almond milk, which is surging in popularity. What's the USDA have to say? Well, they still recommend that adults get three cups of dairy a day, including options such as fat-free or low-fat milk or calcium-fortified soy milk. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which represents nutritional professionals, is apparently supporting the Get Real campaign. The story about milk is an interesting one. It's not going to go away, and we'll return to it again. We noted in past programs that it turns out that human beings... Um, had some mutations along the way, which allowed us to continue to produce enzymes that digest milk into adulthood. A lot of animals can't do that. Actually, a lot of people can't do that. Apparently, most Caucasians can. Uh, most African populations can. But Asian populations, not so much. Although, we've heard that in China, dairy products are apparently increasing in popularity. We need to learn more about this. Because I used to always joke, there's a reason why you don't get milkshakes in a Chinese restaurant. If you don't have the enzyme lactose, as many Asian populations certainly lack that, well, they get a lot of upset stomachs and, well, don't trust milk. That's how I, I understand it. So I don't see how they can, you know, push that aside and start embracing dairy products. I don't know. It's a mystery. A minor mystery. We need to, we need to resolve it. 
All right, we got about four minutes left. I want to talk about more science topics. I got a choice between politics or science. We're going to go science. I'm going to cite a piece from News Scientist Magazine, January 17th issue by Richard Webb, titled Do It Again. Subtitle is What We Can Find Out by Reenacting the Science of Yesteryear. And it turns out the answer to that is you can discover a lot. Evidently, a man named Hassock Chang was researching a book on the history of the thermometer. And frankly, we don't see a bestseller in that. But he was reading some old accounts, but he found himself reading uh, accounts of old experiments on boiling water. And uh, New Scientist notes that soon he had steam coming out of his ears. Chang said, I'm going, these guys must be crazy or badly mistaken or taking the mickey. That's a British expression for like, you know, having fun with somebody. But what raised his hackles was the repeated assertion that water could boil at temperatures other than 100 degrees Celsius. There was 101, 103, even one account of work by the 18th century Swiss scientist Jean-André de Luc of 112 Celsius. Now, all these researchers were reputable, and the procedures they followed seemed legitimate. So what was going on? Well, how about performing the experiment again to find out? That does seem like a more sensible approach than, you know, making war on Twitter about what temperature water boils at. So to his credit, Hasok Chang repeated the experiments that were done long ago, and he found out that, well, all these guys were right. We're familiar, of course, with the idea that water boils at lower temperatures when air pressure is reduced, which is why we know when you make tea up in Tahoe, it may take a little bit longer. It's just boiling at a lower temperature. But it turns out there's other factors that are relevant. The speed of the heating, the shape of the materials of the container, and the amount of air and other substances dissolved in the water. It turns out that that uh, Swiss scientist, Jean Deluc, he basically carried around water and... Uh, and kept shaking it to rid it of all the air that was dissolved in the water. When he did that, the water got up to 112 Celsius before it boiled. Isn't that interesting? You know, there you go. If you want to make really hot water, just carry on the bottle and keep shaking it to get the air out of it. Uh, actually, we don't recommend that you do that. Although Mr. Millen is exploring the possibilities of certain bar bets related to this story, all right, we started out the program by talking about some curious headlines, and I think we're going to close the show with the same idea here. Uh, the headline in question, which happens to be from this very same issue of New Scientist magazine, is Superfast Penis Evolution Seen in Lizards. To a quote from the piece, they say size matters, but what of speed? In some lizards, penises have been evolving incredibly quickly, up to six times faster than other traits. Now, the article briefly mentions why they, you know, think their observations are valid, then goes on to say that this superfast evolution could be explained by female preferences for new male shapes than better fit. But they close by noting that whenever they've been examined, the female analyst lizard genitals match the shape of the corresponding penises, which seems only natural and right to us. But they quoted Gunter Kurler of the Schuckenberg Research Institute and Natural History Museum in Frankfurt as saying it's likely that female genitals are evolving just as fast. So really, the title of this piece probably should have been Super Fast Genital Evolution Seen in Lizards. But, uh, you know, our money on the explanation for that is that penis makes a better marketing tool. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we're pleased to go out with our bumper music to close the show with King Missile's immortal rendition of Detachable Penis. 
which would certainly represent quite an evolutionary leap forward. Our thanks to Bernadette Ballacks. We'll see you next week at the same time. I woke up this morning with a bad hangover and my penis was missing again. This happens all the time. It's detachable. This comes in handy a lot of the time. I can leave it home when I think it's going to get me in trouble. Or I can rent it out when I don't need it. But now and then I go to a party, get drunk, and the next morning I can't, for the life of me, remember what I did with it. First I looked around my apartment and I couldn't find it. So I called up the place where the party was, they hadn't seen it either. I asked them to check the medicine cabinet, cause for some reason I leave it there sometimes, but not this time. So I told them if it pops up to let me know. I called a few people.